you know, pinstripes. You know, that slims you out, John. You know, you know, those vertical stripes slim you out. I try to do that as a sort of an optical illusion for me every once in a while, but it works for you too. So our pastor, John Lieber, everybody, give him a hand. All right. Okay. It was on, but it wasn't on. All right. Uh, yeah, now I'm on. See, they've simplified it for me. There's an on and an off button. I'm so technology challenged. If it's more complicated than that, I can't get there. So uh, we have a, a tradition in our church when, when uh, God blesses families with, with children. We, uh, we have a time where we bring them before the congregation and, and they acknowledge that, that their kids are a gift from God. Uh, that, that every person is a gift from God, but that God's given that child to their family to, to raise in the Lord's instruction and nurture. And so uh, we believe it's important to acknowledge that. And, uh, you know, all, all the big passages of life we do in front of the people that are most important to us. So uh, the, the Grinners and the Wannets both have uh, kids. <laughs> we're, we're a fertile church now again. Uh, and so why don't you guys come up? I'm gonna, I've got a bad cold, so I'm going to stay away from the children. But I want you guys to come up. Come up together. Yeah, all together. And we'll just start on my right. You guys uh, have anything you want to say? Come on, Grant. I've said everything I need to say. Is, is Julie your spokeswoman? Oh. I don't really like talking in front of people. This is very uncomfortable. <laughs> but um, I guess, really, just we're just so thankful for baby Catherine, and we just love her so much. And we've really realized, I guess, the frailty of babies and people in general with everything that's gone on. So we're just so thankful for the blessing that she is and just realize, like, God's just blessing us to raise her, and we're just thankful for that. And we appreciate all your guys' love and support as yeah. friends and family. Thank you. <laughs> you sure? Yeah, I don't. Okay. <laughs> you guys? Come on, Mike. Mike, <laughs> the family spokesman. Come on. She's more the spokesman than him. Um, no, we just, um, we're very blessed um, to have Zachary in our life. Um, he's just been such a, a great baby and such a great transition for us. Um, and then just with the family support through this church, it's been just awesome. We appreciate it. Nothing, Courtney? You going to pass? Okay. Well, what we do is you guys step forward a little bit there. And uh, we're going to pray around both families. And so if you guys, you know, families and friends, small group, whatever, uh, if you want to come around and gather around them, we're just going to pray for them, for, for Kate, for Zachary, for God's blessing on them. And uh, don't be timid. Come up, just gather around. And you guys step forward a little bit more so that they can get behind you too. You guys have brought a crowd with you. <laughs> thank you, Father. All right. Father, we uh, thank you for these families uh, that you've formed. You, you brought these couples together and then you entrusted uh, new lives to them. And we pray for Kate and for Zachary right now that, that uh, your blessing would be on both their lives uh, that you'd protect them and uphold them and keep them. 
uh, that the, the gift that they're meant to be to our world and for future, for generations, Lord, that, that those, uh, that, that giftedness, that image that they bear of you would begin to emerge fully and, and richly and it would just overflow and touch many people. And we pray, Father, for Aaron and Julie and Mike and Courtney and their other children, their families, that uh, your grace would be upon them in a new measure for these new additions to their family. Thank you for them, Father. Thank you for their faithfulness and their love and uh, their perseverance. Uh, we ask that, that everyone here would uh, own this responsibility uh, to support them and encourage them and help them and babysit for them and do all those things, Lord, that uh, are practical and important as these, ch- these children grow up. And uh, may your grace be on us all in Jesus' name. Amen. kinds of stuff up here. There. So it's, it's Christmas season, and uh, we want to start with a portion of Scripture that's pretty familiar to everybody, uh, and, but this portion of Scripture touches on uh, the issue of scandal. Scandal, you know, even that word kind of sounds, ooh, scandal. Uh, it, it evokes images, it evokes situations, people's names, Some, sometimes it evokes feelings in us, maybe scandals touched your life in some way, but scandal is just, you know, you can't, uh, it, it's what, as they say in the internet world, it's what brings clicks, and so scandal is constantly put in front of us. And I think it might surprise you to know that the story of Christmas began as a scandal. The birth of Jesus was a scandal. And if you understand the gospel, from the beginning of the story of the good news of Jesus to to the end of it, it's just scandal all the way through it. So we want to look at that today. And and the thing is, most of us, uh, we're sort of curious about a weird broken way about scandal, but we don't want to get too close to it, right? We prefer scandal to be out there and not here, but the story of the gospel invites us to embrace scandal in a way that maybe we've never considered before, because the the power of the gospel is revealed only through the scandal of the gospel. So I want to look at that today, and in the book of Matthew, if, if you don't have a Bible with you, if you want to read along with me, under the chair seats in front of you, there's paperback Bibles that look like this. And I'm going to be reading from the first chapter of Matthew, which is uh, page 669. You'll have to forgive me, I got a cold today. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm taking one for the team here. Matthew 1, verse 18. Matthew writes, This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, 
an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. Now, I want you to pay attention to that. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And he's quoting Isaiah. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So Joseph, uh, this, this story, it's, it's, it's a pretty simple story. Uh, some of the customs that, that are wrapped up in this story we're not as familiar with, but the way it worked was... Uh, when someone was engaged, they were considered to be married, and they were betrothed, and there was a betrothal period, and then they would have a ceremony, and, and the whole community, usually if they were in a small village, the whole community would celebrate with a, a new couple that would get married, and they would, sometimes they'd spend a week just having a huge party, day after day after day, and the couple would consummate their, their wedding covenant, and everyone would celebrate. It was just a, a wonderful time. They had this really rich sense of what uh, marriage is and you know, what family is. That sometimes, you know, we, in our big, the, the big deal we make about wedding ceremonies, we don't get sometimes as much what the wedding ceremonies are about. But in the middle of this, uh, whoops, uh, Mary's pregnant. And in those days, typically the, the, the groom and uh, the, the, the future groom and the bride-to-be, they, they were physically separated. Sometimes they lived in different places and the, the, because families would arrange marriages. All kinds of uh, things could, could keep them separate. And so when Joseph uh, finds out that Mary's pregnant, and Mary says, and it, the story is in, in the book of Luke is told in a little more detail, but Mary says, listen, this baby, I didn't get pregnant the normal way. I got pregnant, uh, you know, once in all history way. And, uh, you know, it was, uh, this is where the Immaculate Conception, the idea, was uh, introduced. And so, of course, you know, Joseph goes, right. <laughs> this baby is from the Holy Spirit. Okay, <laughs> I really believe that. Uh, but he, it says he's a righteous man, which meant he's a man who observed the Jewish law faithfully. And, and the law said that if, if this situation occurred, that, that the woman should be divorced. And even more serious consequences could happen. But Joseph, you didn't have to always do that. But Joseph decided, because he, he cared about Mary, he didn't want to humiliate her publicly. Uh, she was going to be humiliated enough when, when it became apparent she's having a baby and she's not married. He didn't want to double down on that. And, and you know, that was a, that's an unusual quality because you can imagine uh, he has all these hopes and, and this uh, upcoming marriage and then suddenly this woman, you know, apparently has, be, has betrayed him. So he's wrestling with this and it says... 
that uh, he, he considered this. And that word means to ponder. It means to reflect on. So he took some time. He wasn't going to make a rash decision. And, wh- and I, I, you have to wonder at that moment, because he was a righteous man, if he didn't say, God, what do I do? You know, what, what are my options here? You know, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Is that the best thing to do? Well, in a dream, an angel came to him and said, hey, this is, this is exactly what Mary said. The Holy Spirit has conceived in her this baby. And, it, you know, I just read the story. And so Joseph is now, he, he has two options open to him, and both of them are scandalous. It, there is no good option. He divorces her and humiliates her, and if the angel is true, he is disobeying God. Or he marries her. The stigma and the shame of her being pregnant before they were married is attached to him now and their family, but particularly to him. He's a righteous man. He's, he doesn't have any blame in this. So he has these two choices. What do I do? You know, there, there's no good option here. But he sees in the, in the angel's message, this is what God wants me to do. So he goes, I'm going to bear the shame of this family. Because the head of the household was the one that bore the shame. In the community, you know, men were prominent. It was a patriarchal society. So the, the, if, if in this situation, just like in the story of the prodigal, the father would bear the shame. Not the son anymore. The father here would bear the shame. The husband would bear the shame. Not the wife. Now, she would have shame, but, I mean, he would really lose a lot in the eyes of everybody in this community. And it was really important in a a society like that uh, not to be ashamed like that. So, this isn't an easy choice. And he makes what it turns out to be, you know, looking back in history, the right decision. But I think it's hard for us to, to have a sense of, of, and a grasp of how hard that must have been. But the truth is, if we're going to follow Jesus, anybody that follows Jesus is going to embrace scandal. Because the whole Christian life is scandalous. And in this story, I'll just show you, in this story, we read through this story and we don't see in light of how our society views the world, how crazy this whole story seems to be. Like, just start with the part of... Now, Joseph didn't have to forgive Mary because she hadn't done anything wrong. But, thank you. He didn't have to forgive her because she had not done anything to offend him. But it didn't mean that she didn't make his life more complicated and more difficult. Right, and the forbearance that it would have taken, on a, to, to, that would need to have been demonstrated every day from him, was remarkable. And the, the picture, though, in this is the gospel calls us as forgiven people to forgive other people. And in our day and age, in many places, that's a scandalous idea. You know, a few years back, uh, actually in two thousand and six, you might. This is not even the most recent example of this. But a man in Pennsylvania drove up to a small one-room Amish 
country school, went into the school, sent all the boys out, locked the doors, and killed all the little girls in this school, shot them to death, and then killed himself. This, is, this was an unama- a horror. The families whose daughters had been killed immediately went to the wife of this man. He was, he was a husband. He was a father with three kids. They expressed forgiveness to him and his family, and they said, we do not hold you guilty in any way for what he did. We forgive him, and we want you to know we're going to help take care of you. They started a fund that they put a bunch of money into to help this family deal with the tragedy. They, they put in thousands of dollars. The wife of that man uh, went public and said, this has changed our lives, this idea that, that you're forgiving us. But the thing was, that wasn't greeted. You know, this, this amazingly gracious act was not greeted with you know, applause everywhere. Lots of people, uh, like people like Jeff Jacoby, who's a, a Boston Globe columnist. Here, here's what Jeff Jacoby wrote about the idea that these Amish would forgive this man. Hatred is not always wrong. And forgiveness is not always deserved, he wrote in a column. How dare these Amish forgive the killer of their children and reach out to his family? The idea of forgiveness is it's not something you deserve, is it? I don't ever deserve forgiveness. Nobody deserves forgiveness. We deserve consequences for the, the, the wrong we do. But Joseph, even though he wasn't forgiving, he embodied that graciousness. And that's a scandal. It's, it'll always be a scandal. The attitude that, that we're supposed to have as believers is supposed to be shaped by this sense that we're forgiven people. Not because we deserve it. So we forgive other people, not because they deserve it. Doesn't mean they're written consequences, but it means that we are going to live by a whole... Uh, we're gonna, our lives are shaped by something really, really different. And it's not just an idea, it's, a, it's the life of a person. Second, there's another scandal here. In this story, an angel comes and speaks to Joseph. You know, when you speak of angels, people kind of, in a lot of circles, people will roll their eyes and say, you believe in angels? You believe in the supernatural? You believe in demons and healing and, you know, virgins having babies and dead people rising from the grave? You believe in all that stuff? You know, what kind of a backward, regressive person are you in a modern world where we have smartphones and all that? right? It's a, it's a scandal to believe in the supernatural. You know, I was th- thinking this morning, I'm talk- I-, I talk about healing all the time, and here I am standing in front of everybody, and I'm sick. It's, it's ironic. But over the course of the 30 years we've been at Vineyard, we've seen hundreds of people healed of every kind of thing you could think of, from cancer to people who were born deaf to, you know, uh, incurable diseases Coles, I got prayed for this morning, uh, didn't get healed, but it doesn't believe I don't 
believe that God heals people, and I'm going to pray for people every chance I get because God's good. But that's scandalous in a lot of people's eyes because they think, you're crazy. This world's a closed system. There's no God, you know, providence and love and mercy who, who gives his power to people to pray for one another or sends angels to, to help them sort out things. It's scandalous to believe that kind of stuff. Uh, it's scandalous. The next passage, the, Matthew, who wrote this gospel, he inserts in, not only did the angel give him the right idea, but that was corroborated by all the scripture they had at that time, which was the Old Testament. Believing the Bible is scandalous today. Believing the Bible is God's word, that God speaks to us through us, that he'll order our lives, that he's given us what we need for faith and life through what the saints throughout history uh, preserved and wrote down. The apostolic church wrote down and gave us this New Testament. That's scandalous. Tim Keller, though, challenges that. Uh, he's a, a pastor in New York City. He says three things. He says that, that people believe that the gospel accounts, that, that the thing that challenges that idea that the, the Bible's not God's word is, they say it's just legends and myths. Stories that, you know, were, 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 were taken from, there were some stories of Jesus doing some unusual things, but then with the telling of the stories and the passing on and, and the desire to make it as big as possible, and, you know, there was Jesus the good teacher and then Jesus who was God. But, the Jesus who was the good teacher was just the truth. The Jesus that was God was an embellishment. You know, it's, it's like projection of our human hopes on, on, on a good man. But what Keller and a lot of scholars point out is this, that, that the accounts, the gospel accounts were written too early after the events to allow for the, 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 the time that it takes for myths and legends to develop. It just takes time. It's been proven throughout history. Secondly, he says that the gospel accounts are too counterproductive to be legends and myths. If, if these weren't true, why are the apostles' flaws and cowardice and, and character issues all exposed? If they're going to start the church, they should be the heroes. But that isn't the way the Bible tells the story. The Bible tells the story the way it was. And Ancient myths and legend stories don't do that. They don't show you the, the rough side, the real side of people's lives that they're trying to, to promote. And like Keller also points out that the first people who were sent to be witnesses of Jesus' resurrection were women. Now, that, doesn't, that wouldn't shock us today, but in the first century, women weren't considered reliable witnesses. They couldn't even testify in court. And so, do you think it's a good idea to add that to the story? Do you think that was going to enhance everyone's confidence that this was the truth? No. Unless it was the truth, it's, it's hard to see why that kind of thing would be put in there. Third, or fourth, uh, you see Joseph, after he decides to go ahead and marry this young woman, Mary, he... he abstains from consummating the, the marriage, which was normal back then and now, he showed this unusual sexual restraint because he didn't want this child. Well, my, my speculation is, this is what a lot of scholars say. I'm not a scholar, but this is the, the general reason why people believe that he didn't have sex with Mary, was this child was unusual. He didn't want 
anybody to believe it was his child or anybody else's child. And so he did what was unusual then or now and abstained from sexual intimacy. Now, there are people today who believe that the Christian's view of what constitutes sexual ethics is crazy. That there's something wrong with you if you believe that the only proper venue for sexual intimacy is in a covenant relationship between a man and a woman for the rest of their life. Anything outside that, any other expression is wrong. And it's not God's will, it's not God's design. And, you know, one of the things the Bible says about freedom is freedom is not, it's the ability to just do whatever you want is not freedom. That's what we tend to think freedom is. But real freedom is when you live the way you were designed to live. That's real freedom. And it's scandalous to hold out to people today that God wants you to be sexually faithful to him. It's to him and to other people and to, your, to yourself. That's crazy. But the biggest scandal, and I'll close with this, the biggest scandal in this story is the scandal about who Jesus is. Now, the scandal of the gospel, the heart of the scandal of the gospel is the cross. The cross of Jesus. So when you walk, you know, in our church, in a lot of churches, when you, when you visit where we gather, we want you to understand what this whole deal is about. And so you walk in our front door, there's that huge cross. You walk into the building, there's a cross here. Uh, Christians will often wear crosses, you know, as, as jewelry. The symbol of the cross is this image that is associated with the church, and it's just, you know, a lot of people that aren't Christians wear crosses. It's a kind of an attractive little symbol, but they don't understand what it was in the first century. In the first century, the idea that anything good could be associated with crucifixion was repulsive to people. Because crucifixion was the worst possible death that people could experience. Criminals, only the very worst criminals were crucified. And when you were crucified, you were crucified in public. You were crucified on major thoroughfares. You were crucified in arenas. You were crucified in the, in the entrance to cities. And when someone was crucified, they were nailed to a cross, naked, and they hung there for hours and days. And they screamed in agony. And they defecated and urinated and bled. It was the most shame. It was, it was, a, it was a way of shaming people. And you can read ancient historians. They say it was disrespectful to even bring up crucifixion in a in a, in a polite gathering. And in this passage, Matthew starts the story of Jesus with this idea Jesus was the Savior who would save people from their sins, that he was God with us, saving us from our sins. And this story ends up with Jesus on a cross being crucified. And that the whole story leads up and informs us as readers that that was why he came and that God's power of salvation was released through 
what Jesus did on the cross. They couldn't even comprehend that. None of his disciples, which is an amazing part of the story of the gospel, when Jesus started introducing to them, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be rejected. They thought the Messiah was going to come and be welcomed because he was promised to deliver. He was going to be a great deliverer and savior. And the his disciples could not get their head around the idea that he'd be rejected. And then he said, I'm not just going to be re- rejected. I'm going to be betrayed, turned over to the Romans, and they're going to crucify me. And they were going, no way. In fact, Peter, his, his sort of right-hand apostle said, start arguing with them in, in one moment in this book, in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus said, you don't get it, Peter. You're setting your mind on men's interest, on your own interest. But that's not what God's into. This is the plan of God. Trust me, we've heard this story so many times. We're we're numb to the scandal of the cross. We just are. But what Jesus said was (coughs) that, and what the gospel lays out, all the gospels lay out, is that God's salvation was going to be released into the lives of the whole world through this crucified Jew. That by his death, he was going, his, whoever would believe in him and what he did, however foolish it may seem to them, however repugnant it may seem, however much they think, maybe I don't need that for me because I'm not as bad a person. His death was saying, no, you are. You're worse than you know, but you're more loved than you could possibly imagine too. And so this cross is a symbol of both those things. That we're ruined, but we're loved. And that we can't rescue ourselves. And so Jesus, like the song we sang, Jesus went to the cross and he suffered in our place for our sins. For all of us. For the man who killed those 10 or 12 little girls. Those little Amish girls. For all the different people in the world who've done horrible things. Who haven't done maybe horrible things like that. They've just been selfish. They've never done criminal, horrible things. But they're still turned in on themselves and living life for themselves. Jesus died for all that. All the people in between those two points on the spectrum. And all the saints in the world. All the the Mother Teresas and the people who've done wonderful things with their lives. They're all under the same condemnation of of God's perfect justice. And so when Jesus died, he said if we believe in him, the power of what happened there is horrible. There was something amazing going on there that it's hard for us to get our minds around because it was so horrible. But he was suffering the judgment against sin for everyone. And that if we trust him, we're forgiven. We are made righteous. Like, he was a a righteous, a completely perfect human being, the only one that ever lived. And the righteousness that he went to that cross with is given to us. We're not just declared innocent. We're declared righteous as a gift. We're reconciled to God. Like, he he was perfectly united to God. We're given that status of reconciled to God as a gift. And then the fourth thing is the power of what he did begins to give us the power over 
all these things in our lives that control our lives that we regret if we believe in him. It sounds foolish. In fact, there was a, a, another writer, another gospel, uh, another Christian leader, first century an apostle named Paul, who said, when people hear this, they think God is weak and God is foolish when they hear the cross. They think, this is crazy. God's not like that. God's not weak. That's saying God's weak. No, it's not. It's revealing his strength. And they look at it and say, no, God's foolish. And the gospel writers say, no, it's it's revealing God's wisdom. And history is full. This room is full of people who've experienced the power of that grace that comes when you believe in this crucified Jew. It's a crazy idea. I know. When I first heard it in college, it was a crazy idea to me. I mean, I was raised around church, but I wasn't raised with the idea of what the gospel was. I just thought you believe in God and you try to be a good person. That's what Christians were, right? I didn't have any idea. It was, it was something way beyond that. And many of you are familiar with, many of you might not be familiar with him, but you, you, you will be familiar in a second. You've heard of him if you haven't heard of him. Back in the 19th century, there was a man who was, uh, he made his living in the, in the British slave trade. And he was the captain of a slave ship that went, you know, from uh, the New World to the Old World and carried slaves back and forth. He was cruel. He was considered, you know, like an inhuman person. He profited off the misery of other people. And he heard the gospel and he was so broken by this idea that, that God would suffer for him. He repented of his sins and he quit the a very lucrative slave trade, and he became an ardent abolitionist. In other words, he, he began to, to uh, work with other people to abolish slavery in England and everywhere that it existed. And not only that, he went further. He became a pastor who was imprisoned for his faith, and he wrote that famous song that a lot of us sing all the time, Amazing Grace. His name is John Newton. That man who was this cruel, inhuman, almost less than human person became a, a respected person by the power of believing, simply by believing in the power of what Jesus did. There's another man, a contemporary man. His name is Mukhtar. And Mukhtar lives, I won't say where he lives, he lives in East Africa. And he's a Muslim sheikh. And a sheikh is just a teacher. Uh, they're, they're people who study the, the Quran and they, most of them memorize it. And he was put in prison for his violence against people who, who opposed, Iran, uh, opposed Islam. And while he was in prison, he met a man there who was a believer in Jesus. And that man began to tell him about Isa al-Masih. That's the, that's the uh, name of Jesus in the Quran. And he said at a certain point he began to see that this, that Esau must see Jesus was the Savior. And he believed in him while he was in prison. And it so changed his life. Here's what he said. He said, uh, my anger turned to joy, my resentment turned to compassion, and my hatred turned to love. And the prison officials saw such a change in him that they cut his sentence short after a while, after seeing this, and they sent him home. 
Well, he went home. He didn't have a place to live anymore because he kind of burned all of his bridges. He went to his brother's house, Hassam, who was also a sheikh. His brother, Hassam, after you know, a few days of living with his, his ex-prisoner brother, Mukhtar, he said, what's happened to you? And so he started the same process of sharing the good news about Jesus with his brother, Hassam, who was also a Muslim sheikh. He became a Christian. His whole family became a Christian. And then in the next two years, over 20 other Muslim leaders in that community came to believe in Jesus and give up all the violence and things that they had, they had been advocating. And 30 churches were planted out of the influence of Mukhtar and over 600 believers in that village. Now, this is happening all over the world. There are hundreds of thousands of followers of Jesus that were once ex-Muslims, many of them who had been extremists. You know, we're, we're spending a lot of money to try to fight radical Islam. We're not winning. This is how change happens in people's lives. I could, I could sit here and tell you story after story. Of, of terrible people who have been changed by the power of believing in this crucified Jew. I think sometimes, you know, we hear this story and we think, you know, that's good that these really messed up people have an option to help them get their life together. But, you know, I'm not like them. We're all like them. Maybe we, don't, we aren't as bad as we could be, but we're not the best version of ourselves. And our sins have, and you know, living life on our own terms has consequences, not just in our own life, in the life of everyone around us. I mean, the biggest problem in our lives is it's, it's not the wrong we do, it's the good we haven't done. That's just as destructive as the wrong that we do. And that's wrong too. And the good news is, just to close with this, Jesus and this is, the, this is the craziest part of the gospel story. The creator who made everything. When you read the gospel, like in the gospel of John, when he's talking to Martha at the resurrection of Jesus, at the resurrection of his brother, he says to her, I'm the resurrection and the life, and he whoever believes in me will live and if he dies. And he, and he says to her, do you believe in me? I want you to grasp this moment. The creator who is there in human form humbles himself and he's saying, will you trust me? There's no coercion in this. There's no pressure. I mean, imagine that, that picture. He's about to go and just with his words say to her brother who's been dead for days, come out of the grave and he's going to be raised from the dead, the power that's in his, just his words. Yet he stands in front of her and he invites her, will you believe in me and experience the life that I'm about to reveal when I raise your brother from the dead? That can come into your life now. And the Jews had a, a real rich sense of, of morality that, that a lot of times we don't have in our modern culture. But all of us know our lives aren't what they were meant to be. So, you know, it's the, the gospel, the way to respond to the gospel, is, it's real simple. There's three phrases. I say this all the time. 
There's three phrases that we use every day, most every day, that are, they sort of summarize how we respond when Jesus says, I died for you. Will you trust me? Will you give your life to me? If you want to respond to him, you say, I'm sorry. These are three phrases. I'm sorry, please, and thank you. I'm sorry I've lived life on my own terms. I'm sorry that I, I thought I was, you know, I could do whatever I want. I'm sorry I've ignored you. I'm sorry I've lived life not according to your will, but my own will. I'm sorry for the mess I've made. And, and I think you'd be honest in saying it's not the worst mess you could have made. But there isn't any of us sitting in this room that don't have, if we looked behind us, a trail of sorrow by the way we've lived our lives. And God says, I want to change that. I want to do something in your life that you can't do. And then, so when you say, I'm sorry, you're acknowledging you need to be forgiven. And then you say, please, would you please forgive me for all I've ever done and all I'm going to do. And when you do that, not because I'm such a good person, but because of what Jesus did for me on the cross, would you release the power of what Jesus did on the cross in my life? Would you take the mess I've made and would you put it to his account, and would you give me his life and, and put it in my account? And when we say that, right there, the Bible says that we experience the forgiveness of our sins, and, this, and God's presence comes and lives inside anybody. John Newton, Mukhtar, John Lieb, anybody who believes that the silliness of that message, that, that the horror of the crucified Jew's death can actually change your life, experiences it. Something begins to happen. You know, Christians call it being born again. Uh, a new life starts. And then you say, thank you. When, you. when someone gives you a gift that you don't deserve, you say, thank you. And you say, God, thank you for this. Thank you for giving me. Thank you for accepting me into your family. Thank you for, you know, for giving me a new life right now. And you don't have to totally have it all grasped at this moment. You just have to believe that you're starting something new. And that's because of what Jesus did. And it's forever, it'll always be based on what Jesus did. Not on anything you do or anything you don't do. It's a gift. And it's given to whoever asks. So I want to pray and just, you know, close our gathering and, and send you guys home. You know, I know the Grinners and the Wanets have stuff to do and families, things you guys do too. It's getting near Christmas. I'm sure there's some shopping and things going on. But... Jesus is standing just like he stood in front of Mary. He's standing in front of you and he's saying, will you invite me into your life? Will you let me bring you into my life? Will you believe in me? The, the humility that's in that, it's, it's still there in his heart towards us. So I want to pray and if, if, I'm going to give you just a second of quiet. And if, if that's what you want to do, you just do it in your own heart. God knows your heart. You don't have to have... The, the right words, all you have to do is respond to that. Say, God, I don't know what, that, what John just said. I don't have it all in my head real clear, but I want to give my life to Jesus today. From this day forward, I want to be a follower of Jesus. And I I'm willing to embrace the scandal. I'm willing to embrace it and face the fear that comes with scandal. The whole package has fear that comes with it. But 
Jesus will be with you and he'll help you to face it. It's, that's what we all have to learn. So just pray with me. Uh, Father, thank you for giving us a moment here this morning to, to celebrate uh, your mercies and your love and most of all, just who you are. We're here just to say thank you for who you are and all that you've done for us. Uh, you're a good, good father. You're amazing. Your mercies are new every morning. We thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, your son, who died in our place. And I want to wait just for a moment that those that you might be speaking to here this morning would in their own hearts say yes to you and experience your forgiveness and your mercy and your cleansing and your power in their lives just as they... they Respond to that simple invitation.